Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrismovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, I got my first professional barbershop shave, and Cameron asked me if I got the full Sweeney Todd experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, not yet. I mean, you're still here. I no one's right. E- right. Yeah. No one's eaten you in a pie yet, so... Does Sweeney Todd right, only kill, so, like, the, the people he... I, I've never seen Sweeney Todd. But. Yeah, me either, which is why the joke was, like, a little lost on me. Like, I knew the gist. <laughs> Two people who've never seen him play making reference to it. That isn't the epitome of our podcast. I don't know what is. Yeah, I've actually never even read a book before. <laughs> uh, well, I am Cameron Lalana, and as I was telling Matt earlier, yesterday was a, was a day for me. <laughs> it was... First of all, very heavy flooding here in California. So I've been like nine hours a day at the news station, come back, sleep for 12 hours, wake up, making breakfast in the morning. My girlfriend gets bacon grease all over her hands. So like early morning, urgent care, like an hour, we come back and we still haven't made breakfast. I'm start to like pick it up where we left off because we still haven't eaten. My roommate comes out and is like, hey, do you want to, uh, you know, bite of this weed brownie? I asked how much. He said 10 milligrams for brownie. I was like, oh, that's basically nothing. I'll take a big bite, whatever. Turns out he was wrong. It was 10 milligrams per serving, of which there were 10 in the brownie. So he and I spent the rest of that afternoon just out of our minds. Like, it's good. And well, my girlfriend was like trying to trying to do some work for her actual job. And it's like just like holding him as he's just like losing it. So it was it was a fun. I did not come down. It's like maybe 10 p.m. I spent six straight hours playing Fall at New Vegas. Uh, <laughs> just like just running around playing just no 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 objective just running around stealing things and then that was capped off by this this morning i remember like reading in a cafe with my girlfriend and she's also been getting into fall in new vegas and there's a character who's based on a real life person mr house who joan didion of all people she's reading slouching towards bethlehem wrote an essay about him and so she just keeps me like wait this guy's mr house and she's like reading these sections so it's like it's been it's been a whirlwind of a weekend <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah anyway i feel like we should um change from last episode where california's slogan was the center of disaster it should sure. be camera the lot center <laughs> of disaster <laughs> none of the disaster happened to you per se but you were kind of in the center of it all right yeah <laughs> yes this this apartment just creates its own it's a vortex anyway <laughs> anyways this is a Fallout New Vegas podcast for me and my good time Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This evening, we are continuing our journey through Tolstoy's War and Peace. We're doing parts one and two of book two, which if you're not getting confused yet, oh, just wait. Just wait. Just and wait. After, <laughs> and after all this time reading War and Peace, you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of your reading. We assume you're reading along. Otherwise, why are you spending so many hours listening to this podcast about the minutia of the of the book? That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy, where we make or we're going to be posting a reading guide for each episode that includes quick commentary on major quotes and themes. Plus, once per month during this series, we're hosting a Patreon only reading group to discuss everything we didn't get to discuss on the show. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help these lads out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. And Matt, I got to ask, and I won't keep uh, bringing up the the um, abstaining Akhmatova thing, because that can only go mm-hmm. so many episodes before it gets a little grating. Just let's right. go for a regular plane. What are you drinking today? 
Uh, this episode, I am drinking a Wellbeing IPA. This is right. a, a company that I have, I believe, drank on the podcast before. I've definitely drank them in my personal life before. It is a non-alcoholic IPA, and it is really good. I'm actually really surprised at the non-alcoholic technology we have nowadays, which I guess we just call technology, but it's great. <laughs> I like. I think this this is another opportunity for a podcast. One of the only, if not the only, podcast where you're going to get some good non-alcoholic beer recommendations. That's right. And we could have a non-alcoholic beer sponsor should a Russian literature-loving beer company happen to be listening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I well, Although I will say, um, as I sent Matt this weekend, not starting this weekend, this week, um, if you if it's Budweiser, first of all, uh, I saw an article of people drinking Budweiser for the flavor, like non-alcoholic no. Budweiser. And if you are drinking out Budweiser for the flavor, alcoholic or non-alcoholic, you can turn the podcast off right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to report because <laughs> that's a horrible idea. But for everyone else who enjoys any other non-alcoholic beer, uh, send us recommendations and you are welcome Absolutely. here. It's just Absolutely. specifically the Budweiser people. <laughs> I bring no pleasure in reporting that. Budweiser is the first beer I ever drank and enjoyed. However, if you do actively enjoy it, I, I'm sorry. There's, there's no saving you. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing else we have for you that we can do for you. <laughs> Anyways, Cameron, what are you drinking? And please tell me it's a Budweiser. Sure. Uh, it looks like a Budweiser. Like one of the, one of the, one of the no. Yeah, it does. Actually, it looks like a Bud Light, but it's not. Um, this joke is going to land flat for all the people who are listening to the audio and not seeing the video, which you can also go check out our YouTube channel to see, you know, all, all these videos on, on video. It's a cold torpedo, uh, cold IPA from Sierra Nevada, uh, which is frozen hops. I don't understand the technology. My sister works for a Sierra Nevada. She gave me some beers. I, I think these ones are being trialed to see if they go to mass market. So whenever you listen to these, they may be in mass market. They may <laughs> not see be. if they will be executed or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, as I understand it, they give them to employees, things are good enough, they give them to the general public, they're good enough, they go into production. So, you know, it's it's good. It's a solid one. I hope I hope you can all enjoy this. Look it up. Maybe you can how buy does, it. How does that testing process work? Like, I don't know if I liked it. Can I have more? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the employees first, and then if they want more, maybe the public wants more. If the public wants more, maybe the, you know, mass public wants more. That's good culture right there. But anyway, <laughs> let's let's talk but about anyway. the reason for this podcast. Part two of book two, part one, it's parts one and two of War and Peace. I want every time <laughs> we start recording, I, I make it a personal mission of mine not to make another joke about this confusing naming pattern, but it never comes out. There's nothing confusing about it. It's part four of our series, which covers book two, <laughs> which contains parts one and two that we're covering again on part four of our series. It's, it's simple. Yeah, super simple. <laughs> uh, before we get into talking about the... The fact, this jam-packed part full of full of elements. Is there anything you want to talk about? No, this was just the thicky. There's nothing else to say about it. This Every was a five chunk. Yeah. Every five pages, something major happens in here. Yes. Okay, so let's kick it off. We are in, I believe, October of 1805. Nikolai has returned to Moscow in order from, from the battlefield. Recall last time that we had that major loss at Austerlitz. Nothing went according to plan. The French were far forward for where they were supposed to be, at least as the um, Austrians and Russians understood it, and, and some Czech understood it. Things did not go well. Total loss. Andre, you know, left on the side of the road. Not going well. So now Nikolai's back in Moscow, and naturally after that major disaster, everything's going great for Nikolai. His family's happy that he's home. You know, he's like this cool military guy. He's been, you know, out on campaign. He was awarded the medal after being wounded. And so things are are you know, going pretty well for him. And his family is, is happy to have him there. So now that Nikolai is, is back, 
we have to take up our, our old ways. And I keep in mind before Nikolai left, Boris was in love with Natasha. <laughs> Nikolai was in love with his cousin, cousin Sonia. And as he returns, he's noticeably colder towards her. And Natasha even pulls him aside and, and asks him to be a little bit more formal with her because as he was gone, she didn't want to give him the impression she being Sonia didn't want to give him the impression that she expected him to marry her just because she's in love with him and he told her that he loved her and so it's you know not a big deal just to give her space whatever you want to do and nikolai says well, great my star is going up i don't actually want to marry my cousin anymore so that works out perfectly for me well it's <laughs> it's that you know she's really hot and she loves him a lot so that's good but he's a young guy he's got to go out and do whatever it is young guys do so you know she'll still be there be there in a couple of years, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Which is just a framing that you know is going <laughs> to set us up for disaster in like three parts. <laughs> yeah, this part, this part, in, in, in terms of relationships, it's it's going to be a bit of a tough one. Um, yeah. What we'll be going through. So as this is happening, also a feast is being set up at the English Club, which is the fashionable place to be by um, by Nikolai's father, Count Rostov, for um, Prince Bagration. Bagration is now being hailed as a victor in Moscow, even though they lost because, well, they need someone to celebrate. And General Kutuzov is now out of fashion <laughs> because he lost the battle. Now, keep in mind, he was the only one who was protesting this actual plan, but he lost the battle. Now, everything's going is going great for him. Things are getting ready. All these people are arriving. Uh, well, of course, all the men are arriving to the club. We have all our major characters here. Nikolai's here. Pierre is here. Uh, Dalakov. Everyone, it's going great. The feast, people are having a good time. Bagration even has to come and read poetry, which he feels very awkward about doing. He's not entirely certain about the, you know, like the formalities here. He's just kind of like shuffled in and handed things, which he reads off and poetry and all these other things, which is a nice dinner. Not so much for him. But as we jump into Pierre's perspective, he's not doing so great because there are a lot of rumors that um, his wife has taken a lover who happens to be our friend uh, Dalakhov. I won't say his rank because it changes every time we meet him. And I, I honestly, yeah. I think it changes once or twice more in this part. I do not remember anymore what, he, what, what part he is at that point in the book. And he, he's heard that Dalakhov is his wife's lover. And he is just like sitting in the chair, vibrating, not talking to anyone. He's not happy about it. And things come to a head when at the end of the dinner, the people are passing out sheet music for... Uh, something and then Dolokhov kind of reaches over the table and grabs it out of Pierre's hand begins to read it and Pierre kind of freaks out and it's like you villain all right I challenge you to a duel and <laughs> Dolokhov says sure all right <laughs> he looks at this pudgy man who has never fired a gun in his life and says okay <laughs> let's duel and the next day comes and everyone expects them to basically call it off and, and everyone is impressing upon Pierre hey Look, just say it was a mistake. Say you overreacted. You know, you 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 have to because you don't actually want this duel to go forward. Everyone fully expecting Pierre to die. Um, and he says, nope, I'm not going to do it. Um, I, I've, I've been humiliated by this man sleeping with my wife and then taking my sheet music. <laughs> when will the when will the uh when will the abuse end against me? When will the musical humiliation be over? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they go up to 40 paces and and excellent. Excellent uh, duel scene. A lot of a lot of good scenes in this part. Mm -hmm. um, they engage in their duel, and surprisingly, Pierre shoots Dolokhov. Actually, hits him even through all the mists. And Dolokhov, when he has already been shot through the chest or through the stomach somewhere in, in the torso, shoots back and completely misses Pierre. 
they'll both get shuffled off. Now everyone's like super worried that Dolokhov is going to die. No one expected him to actually get hit. And so they bring him back to his mother's. Um, and Nikolai finds out that Dolokhov, as a side note, is has is a, has a doting mother and a, um, a sister with a disability. And he, they both adore him. He's like very nice to them. He's actually mommy's favorite. <laughs> yeah like he like before he goes there he's like nikolai you got to go ahead my mother will die if she like sees me in the state without any preparation so pierre goes home not feeling great he's like sitting on the couch face in his hands like i gotta go to petersburg i have to get away my marriage to my wife is over you know this humiliation has to end and then helena comes in and just begins to berate uh pierre which also sorry before we get into the preparation or the the the, the um barrage i should say uh ding 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 sweet home alabama meter as pierre is sitting there worrying about his wife also he thinks about uh anatoly coming over to see them and just like jokingly kissing her on her bare shoulder bare shoulders and then her being like oh why are you getting so weird about it's just my brother kissing my shoulders (laughs) as you do as you do just god someone needed to hit tolstoy with a stick um so <laughs> helena comes in and absolutely lambasts pierre and she says you've ruined our reputation you have made me a fool a lot of women in my place would have taken a lover however i did not i just liked his uh, his company because he's intelligent and funny unlike you now you need to go and set this right and pierre says just leave me alone take whatever you want our marriage is over and he like takes off to petersburg and just basically leaves her a lot of his estate essentially just to get, get that argument over with he's like just so rich, though, mm-hmm. like incomprehensibly rich, which we'll get to later more so. Yeah. So f- he he takes off to go to to go back to Petersburg, which is the last we'll hear from him in this part. So from here, we go over to the Balkansky estate. At this point, they've received letters from Kutuzov that uh, Andre was lost. They did not find him among the, the French didn't count among their prisoners. Keep in mind, Andre was captured, but just like left it with a uh, someone in the countryside because they thought he was going to die. And so things are down at the Balkansky estate. Um, you know, the father is totally just losing all of his luster. Maria is holding on to hope. But they're all, after a decision by Maria, hiding this truth from Lisa, uh, the little princess, because they believe that she will not be able to take it. And this continues until the moment of that Lisa's going to give birth. And she goes into labor, and there's a whole bunch of ruckus and hubbub. In the middle of it all, Andre shows up on their doorstep alive. And they don't even have time to really reflect on that fact because Lisa's in labor. So they bring him to her. They see each other for a moment and he goes away. She gives birth and dies. Going forward, we have, I told you, we're not even like, we're just getting into this. A lot of stuff happens in this part. Um, that, so, But that one, like, it seems like it would be a major point. Yeah. If not for the fact that the narrative just really doesn't care for the little princess <laughs> aside from her lip. Yeah. So... She gets a pretty quick and ungrateful ending, I think. I had to read it twice because I thought they were using, because he walks in and sees like her dead body. And the way it's phrased, I thought it was like, they were using it as like, oh, as if she were dead. They don't even say yeah. she is dead. It's just like, oh, she like her, like look upon her dead face. I was like, oh, okay. She's like passed out. No, right. she's dead. <laughs> no, yeah, literally. She gets almost like an off screen death in the scene where she's present. That's how it's narrated. Yeah. So going forward, they have her funeral. They baptize the son uh, as Nikolai Andreevich um, Balkonsky. All through it, it's noted that uh, at all points to both the elder Balkonsky and the younger Balkonsky, uh, that she seems to her her body seems to look at them as they're asking, "What if? What have you done to me?" 
Um, so going forward from there, you know, a war is going on. Uh, now that, you know, Napoleon's on the march again, and we have uh, everyone getting ready to go. Nikolai, for example, he's getting ready to go back to the armed forces. And so is everyone at Denisov, uh, Dalachovsky. And while they've been in Moscow, Dalachovsky, Dalachov, <laughs> I don't know why I did Dalachovsky, um, they've all been enjoying themselves. Uh, Dalachov has been spending a lot of time with Sonia. Denisov has been spending a lot of time with Natasha. And I'm just going to get this out of the way. Yeah. Like Natasha's like 13 or 14, maybe best case scenario. And that's bad. Sonia's 16. Uh, Dolchov and Denisov are both like in their mid late 20s, early 30s. Um, but there's a kind of a sort of a romance. I'm going to call it kind of subplot there. Not subplot. It's actually pretty integral with the plot because on as right before Nikolai is planning to leave, they throw a ball for all the teenage girls but everyone, everyone goes. It's really just like so the teenage girls can kind of dance and get used to the soirees that are feature are a feature of, of upper society. And so this is like their first um, times getting in those dresses and getting all made up as they will have to do much more often later in life. And well, there, first of all, Dolgov proposes to Sonia and Denisov proposes to Natasha. We'll deal with these as they go. Uh, Sonia roundly turns down Dolgov. It happens off screen. Um, and Dolokhov kind of stalks off because Sonia is still in love with Nikolai. Um, and this happens actually later on, but we'll just deal with this now. <laughs> Natasha is pretty into it and goes and tells her mom, hey, Denisov has proposed to me. And her mom, who is perhaps the only reasonable person in the situation, gets <laughs> yes. angry that anyone could have seen her daughter as a woman who's old enough to marry and like goes to march on Denisov and tells him off, essentially, which good for her. Bar is so incredibly low, but hey, not not accepting child marriage is, is what we're accepting is the baseline now. We'll take a stand on that on this podcast. <laughs> we'll take a stand on the child marriage is bad train. Yeah, um, yep. shame on you, Tolstoy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, as a, as as an outcome of or Dolokhov being rejected by Sonia, later on Nikolai goes to see him. Uh, we should note that Nikolai and Dolokhov have gotten really close. Nikolai helped Dolokhov as he was recovering from the gunshot wound. So they've, they're like kind of like brothers at this point. And then Nikolai comes in and he senses something wrong in this situation. And as he like goes into Dolokhov's place, who's just sitting there playing cards, and Dolokhov, and, and Dolokhov invites him to sit down and play cards with him. And Nikolai sees a cruelty in him, and he knows like that's the cruelty he gets when he gets bored. But he sits down anyway and he begins to play cards. And Nikolai has 2,000 rubles, which he has just gotten from his father. His father says, hey, we're kind of tight in funds. Please don't ask for any more money for you know a couple months down the road. Nikolai says, sure. So he starts playing and he loses 600, then 800. And then he says, whatever, let me learn or kind of earn it back. And he writes down a bet for 600 and he loses that too. And it continues until he has lost 43,000 rubles, <laughs> which is a noted sum. a small sum, which is noted, that's the amount that Dalachov is looking for because that's the combined ages of him and Sonia. So that was how we're finally able to figure out how old Dolokhov is, which, if you're wondering, is 27. Again, Sonia is 16. Um, and so he wins that much and says, I want my money tomorrow to Nikolai very coldly. Nikolai goes home and very shamefacedly asks for that money from his father. Um, well, he goes through and as he's waiting for his father to come to ask for the money, everyone else is having merriment and is, is happy. And he just feels out of place with that. You know, eventually he does. And then you know, the whole thing with Denise stuff happens. And that is more or less where we leave part two or sorry part, part one. one of book two you fool you fall in board again know. <laughs> <laughs> going to part two let's try let's go quickly through this part because it's a little bit less granular thankfully but 
basically, in continuing his tradition of just getting pulled along into things, uh, while Pierre <laughs> is feeling down at a relay station waiting for a horse to go to Petersburg, he gets approached by a Freemason who says, who like talks him through his struggles, and Pierre is like, oh, I feel better after talking to you. And, he's, and the Freemason says, here, here's a, you know, a name, Prince Wilhelm. Go see him. Um, I don't think it's Wilhelm. I think I'm just pulling that out from the Wilhelm screen, but it's a, it's something similar to that. Um, it's like Willarski, maybe. Okay. You know, it's something. I don't have my book with me. You know. Yeah, I, I'm recording without the book tonight because I got enough notes. <laughs> That's how confident I am. <laughs> there we go. I, I have notes here. I've written it down. I just, uh, uh, I've today I have them handwritten, so they're hard to see. So he goes to Willarski, and then very quickly he goes from just chatting this guy. Keep in mind, Pierre is an atheist to being inducted into the Freemasons. <laughs> so we have this entire scene where he's like, in, which again, if you're not familiar with the Freemasons, uh, let's not go into a larger history of that. If you're not familiar with the Freemasons, look it up. I don't know what to tell you. If you're not familiar with the Freemasons, <laughs> let me direct you to the documentary film National Treasure. <laughs> Got everything you need to know in there. <laughs> yeah. So he's being inducted into a religious organization and he kind of sees this as a chance to religious revival. And they're going through all these kind of like dark rooms, skull and crossbones, like literally skulls and crossbones are around. And he, he's like feeling like, oh, this is right. This is the kind of itch, the, the kind of place it should be. But at the same time, a lot of people were leading through like arguing in the background. I'm like, no, we should do it this way. And they're like, no, that this is the ritual. So at the same time that he's taking it very seriously, even the people running it are not entirely certain what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> and so he becomes a Freemason, uh, which is just continues on <laughs> it's, we'll see we'll see more about that later on so it goes from here to boris at another soiree of anna Mikhailovna and boris trubetskoy he is now managed to work his way up the ranks because as he reflects at, at one of the soirees that he's at hey i don't get why people don't advance quickly all i'm doing is tracking down people who are really important and were really willing to give rewards for doing things to them even if it's minor like courier service uh, and then I advance in society and I don't actually need to work hard. Uh, why doesn't everyone do this? Uh, in parallels that we've talked about previously with his mother, maybe mentioned that before, but it's pretty straightforward. So he's the, he's like the, you know, the guest of honor at this ball in the soiree. Um, and so he and Helena hit it he's off. in and... Pavlovna's soiree, right? Sorry, am I saying Anna Mikhailovna? You did. Which is, would be Sorry, mother, I, right? wrong name. That's his mother. Okay. Anna, Anna Pavlovna. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Uh, Anna Pavlovna's soiree. I have Anna Mikhailovna written down here. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> as you can see, a very good notes I've got here. Um, so, but he and Helena hit it off is the important thing to note. And he begins to visit her more often. Now, while this is happening, uh, we also have, um, we, we also have Andre at the Balkansky estate. Ever since the death of his wife, he's become more and more concerned with his son. And kind of a switch has happened. Whereas the elder Balkansky before he, before Andre went to war, was all against it. Now the other Bakonsky has been asked to raise troops for a new campaign. And he's all for it. He's ready to fight. And the younger Bakonsky does not. He will do anything it takes to avoid that. So he's just mostly focusing on his son and his estate. And he did almost die on the battlefield. So there is that. Yeah, there is that too. He's, 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 his priorities are a little bit different. But he's, he's hanging out in the countryside. Pierre, who is uh, spent some time in, in his country estates, goes out and he's like, I want to do good. I'm a mason now. Um, hey, you know, women who have children, they shouldn't have to work. They can stay at home with the babies. We should have doctors and hospitals. We should have all this other stuff. And he gets major pushback at first from his people running his estates because they're not in a good state, really. They're, they're kind of basically, it's now being run by other people. And so he institutes all his things and the people under him are like, yeah, we'll do that. And he goes to on a tour and sees all these villages and they all come out and greet him and they're happy and 
you know, Priest will come out and, and, you know, he's like, it's so easy to make changes. Why doesn't everyone do this? <laughs> and as the narrator notes, after he leaves, well, the most of the people who came to see him were not actually peasants. They were the rich ones or, for example, and a particularly horrifying example, the priest who came to see him was actually all the like young children who he took for like people in holy service had actually been sold to the priest by parents who can no longer afford to keep them. And he was just kind of had them. And all the women who had to stay home actually now had harder things to do. And all this. so basically all of his reforms have basically made things worse for people, which have all been yep. hidden from him by smoke and mirrors by people who want to make him believe that it's changed. And so he doesn't look too closely so they can keep doing what they're already doing. Um, and so after this triumphant tour of all his domains, he goes to see his old friend, Andre, and they finally get back into discussing life and they talk about the meaning of it. Uh, Pierre is now very God oriented or a particular version, the, the Freemasons version of service, so to speak. Well, Andre is very much living for, as he says himself, and they get into talking about life and fate and uh, evil, and their futures and death and all that. Pierre comes with him to dinner. They enjoy each other's company. Everyone, Pierre leaves and everyone's like, wow, we love Pierre. Even the elder Balkonsky who hates everybody is like, <laughs> I love, I love engaging with him, with Pierre. He's such, he's such a, such a good guy to engage with. Sure. Siberia because otherwise they won't know what to do with themselves so actually it's better for society if we're allowed to beat people to death that's good yeah mm -hmm. from here we return to the battlefield where Nikolai freshly lightened of 40,000 rubles uh, is now happy to be back on the campaign um, but things are going very badly for them they are like starving to death like fully half of their Hussar regiment is dying of starvation or disease and they're literally pulling things out of the ground things are so bad that Denisov who's with them goes out and basically robs their own supply line to feed their soldiers, which leads into him being court-martialed and, and eventually he's shot in battle and said he goes to a hospital. And first of all, Nikolai goes to visit him a few weeks later and finds that the state's hospital is horrific. People are dying left and right. Basically, the living who are... It, it's, typhus has taken over the ward. So basically, the wounded are just being left to fend for themselves, die, the living and the dead. Are, it's, it's a horrific scene in this. It, this like is a very tough read to be completely honest, both the starvation and the, and the, the descriptions of death by disease. Um, but then he goes to the officers and finds that they're all in good spirits away from the disease of the common soldier and decides to take Denisov's case, who's being court-martialed still, up to the sovereign. At this point, the sovereign, uh, Tsar um, Alexander, is meeting with Nikolai, meeting with Napoleon at uh, Tiplit, and they, they go and track him down and say, hey, look, Denisov, he deserves a pardon. He was just robbing them because we were starving to death. But the most important thing here is not him, obviously. It's the treaty that they are negotiating. We find Boris here is very close to the center of power down, very close to the sovereign. Nikola asks from Boris for help in this town. Boris says, it's out of my hands, basically. So we wander around. Peace is declared, uh, or at least a, uh, an understanding is reached between Alexander, the Emperor of Prussia, and Napoleon. And they now everything is good. And, and like, you know, Nikolai feels a weird sense of walking around. He's all these French officers who's normal, normally uh, shooting at just kind of walking around and debating each other. And even Napoleon even gives awards unto a Russian soldier. And as he's like watching that, Nikolai gets this weird sense of, well, what was this all for? 
I mean, Napoleon's just here giving us awards. Why are, why are, why are men sitting and dying in these hospitals? What, why do we do this? And he just doesn't know what to do. So he goes to a tavern. And he's kind of sitting there and hears someone criticizing Tsar Alexander's decision. And in that moment, he's dealing with all these thoughts he doesn't like thinking about. He begins to yell at them and says, look, it's not our job to think about these things. All we do is we cut and we slash and that's the end of it. And then someone else in the, in the tavern says, and we drink. And he says, yes, and we drink another bottle of wine. And that is where we leave, leave the end of part two. Um, putting down existential thoughts with wine. Classic. Classic. <laughs> Uh, wow so much happened in this part it was like seriously every three pages another major event is going on i skipped over some things here because this was maybe 117 pages and yeah things happening yeah they did uh is there anything in particular you want to start uh i think we can start on the division between book one and book two i think that sure part of it was page count of course yeah but I do think that there's a sort of conceptual divide that starts to emerge between one and two. You get some mirroring that happens between the two. Uh, you already pointed to the sort of marriage plot, subplot, if you will, that, you know, you get that in book one and you get that in book two. But you get a more mature, even though everyone's only like a year older, maybe uh, two <laughs> years older. I don't know. You get a more mature, I think, sort of sense of things. It's sort of the coming of age part because you have a lot of these moments, especially with Nikolai, where he's looking back and he's like, ah, yes, I remember when I was a child like a year ago. <laughs> um, but you get that sort of detached perspective, like an adult coming back and seeing things that were familiar to them as a child. And so you get a lot of that in this part. And people change a lot. Like Andre changes a ton. I mean, his wife dies, his kid almost dies. Like you said, there's a lot that happens that propels people to act differently and change. And I think it looks really compact because we're dealing with a ton of different characters. And of course, you have to keep in mind that people really weren't living to be that old at this time. So most of your major life events were probably happening by the time you were like, I don't know, 30. <laughs> it's like, you know, in okay life, you could do most of your things in 30 <laughs> years. So... Yeah, a lot can happen in a year, as we see here. <laughs> mm -hmm, right. But in terms of, let's say, quotes that I liked and maybe descriptions that I found particularly interesting, there are a couple things that are sort of expanded on or that you get to see a little bit more in depth. And a lot of these characters really get fleshed out because, you, like I said, you start to see them as kids basically a lot of them and now you get this sort of different sense so nikolai is coming back from the war and there's this really I, I like this line a lot that says the house was as lifeless as inhospitable as if unmindful of who had arrived and you get this great sense of this sort of center of attention that nikolai is becoming that's very much just like his father basically and just the fact that everything from his point of view kind of dotes on him basically uh his mother his father sonia you get everybody just kind of lives to appease nikolai more or less and you know when he comes back and there's not a giant party or something he's you know a little upset and even once he meets people and there's this great moment of joy eventually he has to come back down and he's 
not that happy about that. He's looking for more and more and more. And he's really just kind of a pleasure seeker, really. Uh, you're starting to see that kind of emerge. Mm-hmm. But I like that line about the house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's uh, people around him are people who he, you know, <clears throat> this is jumping forward a little bit, but when he, for example, uh, was talking to Sonia after Dalachov has proposed to her, she turns him down. He says, look, if it was for my sake, overlook that. You know, of course, I'll always love you, but you should really consider his proposal. Things for him are, are going fine, and he wants them to continue going fine. And he will talk other people into doing things that he thinks are good, good for them, which are smooth for him. Right. <laughs> yeah. What tends to be right best for him is kind of a path of least resistance with other characters, which is interesting. Yeah. Different, for sure. Although, sure. Like, you know, not necessarily always. He does have these kind of outbursts as we start to see. Do he's kind of volatile, which is fun. Right. Well, and we'll get more to that towards the end more so once he's back in combat. But do you mind if, yeah. if we go to, for a moment to one of our favorite topics here on Tipsy Tolstoy, mm-hmm. a good duel. So for the duel, obviously we have uh, a Pierre who is formerly very easygoing and now has become somewhat neurotic over the rumors over his wife, um, his, his wife's supposed infidelity. Uh, and, you know, over a slight provocation, Dolokhov taking some music out of his hand, he's now like, you know, you villain. Uh, let me shoot you <laughs> and which for i should say also the duel itself is a, a incredible mixture of very tense mm-hmm. of the scene setting of the two of them marching through the mist towards each other and shooting and also in- incredible comedy yes you know? um and before immediately before the match pierre second has to explain to him how guns work <laughs> how a gun works because he's never <laughs> fired one before <laughs> in which he says oh yes of course i knew that <laughs> So first of all, just as as a piece of right, there's a lot of really good pieces in this part of of tension, mm-hmm. the duel, mm-hmm. the hospital, the starvation. It's it's there's some incredible, very tough um, scenery in this part, and I, I enjoyed that first of all. But this it's a very intricate duel. This is I think probably the most words that I've ever read. But just the the mindset of someone just like stepping forward, walking through the mist. Somebody who doesn't know what he's doing as well. I thought. Yes, I mean, exactly. The fact that the whole duel is happening almost like externally to Pierre, it's like it's happening as a sort of out of body experience for him. It's right. Pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think also, well, let me see. Yeah, as they're getting into it, also, too, to the point of how much things kind of happen to Pierre, even if he sort of causes them, at, there's a moment where he realizes this is real getting into it. And it said, it was becoming frightening. It was obvious that the affair, having begun so lightly, could no longer be prevented by anything, that it was going on by itself, independently of man's will, and would be accomplished. So after a certain point, too, these characters are feeling like it just has to happen. Pierre feels like, I don't have control of this anymore, even though he's given many chances to back out. People are actually begging him to back out, but he feels like things have to go forward. And Dalakov, who loves nothing, really not afraid of death, just steps forward and is ready to take this on because he's... he's He's bored of day-to-day life, as we'll see in the cards, and really the only amusements for him getting away from that boredom is a cruelty of one sort or another, a duel, placing your friends, tying a placement to a bear, and then throwing it into a lake, or sorry, a river. There's a a good book on this, actually. I'm going to add it to our bookshop thing. So I have a a collection of books going if you want to support the podcast, and you can buy whatever translation is available of War and Peace that you would like to read. And I'm also adding to it like secondary sources that I think are interesting. And there's a phenomenal book on dueling. It's like 
the main book on dueling that's been written. It's called Ritualized Violence Russian Style, The Duel in Russian Culture and Literature. And it was written by Irina Raifman, who is, you know, good scholar, good book. Highly recommend if you're interested in dueling that you read it. And to your point, the book is about the duel as a ritual and how it is very difficult to stop a duel once this sort of process has been initiated. And it's really interesting because obviously we don't have duels now. And Cameron and I are really strong proponents of actually bringing them back and sort of reintegrating them into society as a whole. That's one of our big missions with the podcast. And yeah, duels and seppuku. Those are the two big things. Yeah. Among many things. Yeah. But if you're interested in that, you should check out the book. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll probably be talking a little bit about it in our book club. So, hey, come on. There we go. Come on. Come on. <laughs> but it is significant that it's a period in Russian history where dueling was not uh, favored. It was not... You weren't supposed to be doing it. I mean, you were never supposed to be doing it, but there were times where it was like, wink, wink, please don't duel. Uh, this was like, you could really get in trouble for doing it. Right. So That's why Pierre leaves. Right. That's what I was going to say, right? So it does take some effort for everything to get kind of hushed up, but it also is a motivating factor for Pierre to actually leave the city. And that kind of pushes on the gear of progress for him to become a Freemason, and it drives a lot of his actions in this part because it's very transitory for him. He's moving around a lot, which he previously, I mean, he was abroad and studied and whatnot, but mostly he was just kind of like sitting around drinking, so wasn't doing a whole lot. Certainly nothing good. <laughs> no. <laughs> the duel is obviously major, but again, it's like it's like one chapter in this yeah, giant book. Three pages. Mm-hmm. More, maybe, maybe, maybe more importantly is just the the conversation between him and Helena afterwards where he mm-hmm. kind of begins to realize that he actually you know, yells at him and is like, you trusted the rumors of the city over, you know, over me, you know, and tells him that he's a, you know, not in, in, exactly, but in her very polite way that he's a laggard and, you know, every, any other woman would have taken a lot of her, but of course I was, I'm different. Not for really for moral reasons. She's just, just kind of, <laughs> but no, no. Um, no, but I'm not like other girls. I'm worse. <laughs> <laughs> and many other women would have taken a lover, but I'm a Karagan and I've got an eye on the longer, on the longer, <laughs> longer gains. <laughs> I do um, like, though, this is so funny. Chapter six is basically a Pierre retrospective where he goes back and he analyzes the whole situation. And instead of any sort of personal progress, consideration of wrongdoing, the whole thing ends with him saying, yes, my wife is to blame for everything. She alone <laughs> is to blame, which just just wonderful. Just wonderful. <laughs> really good no no it's really it's it was none of it was his fault but he doesn't need to go into the masons to make it right (laughs) yeah but i mean it's just so interesting to observe how this whole sort of thing is pushed forward without pierre's wife speaking at all this is just a conversation happening within pierre's head more or less that he himself is stewing over until it just boils over and that's you know basically it she has no say in it. She has no conversation with him until basically it's all over. And did she do it? I don't know. But just the process by which it actually happened was interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. 
God, that's parts five and six. Oh my God, there's so much happening in this. Um, yes. Is there anyone in particular you want to jump to after this? I wanted to jump a little bit to childbirth. I don't want to hit on it too much, but I did want to note that this is one of the scenes that is kind of similar to Anna Karenina. And there are a couple scenes written in War and Peace where you're like, oh, this is basically the same scene that Tolstoy writes and expands later. But there's sure. really a longer and more drawn out childbirth scene in Anna Karenina. And of course, it's written from the outside, from Andre's point of view, just being kind of confused and wondering about why there are these helpful, he's kind of wondering why there are these helpless animal noises coming from the next room, as he so eloquently puts it. And this is a, a very similar thing to the way that it's written in Anna Karenina. So mm -hmm. if you're a big Tolstoy fan and, and you're reading both, this is a fun one, I think, to kind of compare side by side. And Andre returns. He's got a son now. Uh, and, he, and he feels guilty over his wife, as, as Tolstoy uh, elegantly yes. puts it and very delicately puts it by every time he thinks of his wife, he thinks of her saying, what have you done to me? But, uh, okay, I, I actually do think it's well-written. No, no, I'm sorry. No, I, yeah. sorry. I don't need to. It's, it's a little like it's hammered into your head because it's not just in this part. It comes out later on. It's a refrain you'll hear as he like looks at her body, as he looks at her tomb. Um, sorry, I don't mean to say that's not, it is very well done of like this reflection of her voice, obviously not really heard. It's, you know, his own, his own worries over the relationship coming back to him. But it, this is where you see, I mean, naturally it's where she dies. It's where you see the start of it, which will carry forward as, as he's raising his son and as he's coming to terms with like the way he's living his life, especially once we come back to his later conversation with Pierre and that really begins to stand forward. That, and then I, I feel like we have a lot of kind of cliche idioms to talk about guilt, you know, like being eaten alive by your guilt, for example. But this is such a good way to describe it because he never says that Andre feels guilty and yet it's consuming his thoughts because when they talk about how they built the church or the chapel or whatever they built over uh, her tomb and then they import the statue that he sees he thinks there's a similarity to the way that her lip used to look that's on the statue and when he looks at it long enough the statue seems to say the same thing that his wife seemed to say uh, that her dead face seemed to say that why have you done this to me that I've done nothing and you've all done this to me and so it's just I think it was a really good way of writing in guilt and I, I know Tolstoy probably wasn't concerned with cliche at the time he was writing this but it's just I thought it was well done no it is like this final part is like I was I was entranced this whole part and it's yeah. a little bit shocking that you'll go from one moment where you're like kind of curling your lip at some child marriage plots in one part and the next part you're yeah. seeing the most tense poker game I've ever read about <laughs> yeah so <laughs> it's I mean the the, the writing's well done the, the Tolstoy is Tolstoy the Tolstoy you can't get away from, that's the problem. <laughs> <No>. But <laughs> I do think that you bring up a good point, though, of cards as dual. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I am certainly not the first person to propose this idea by any means. But this game of luck that they're playing, they're playing Pharaoh again, I'm pretty sure. That's just what all the boys played back in the day. And it is literally all luck, no skill. I don't remember how it's played. It was explained to me once before, and I was like, <laughs> that doesn't really make sense, and I still don't really understand it. But all I can tell you with certainty is that it is a game of 100% luck, and the fact that Nikolai has lost so many times in a row makes me pretty sure that Balahov is cheating, or he is just so cursed by fate that he has lost 43,000 rubles, <laughs> which 
I can't even imagine losing that many dollars today. Yeah. I cannot imagine what that was in like 1800 rub- 1800 rub- like that so much. <laughs> yeah. So much. Um, I should we should say so the lead up to the card game again like we mentioned is you know Dalha falls for Sonia, he proposes to her, she turns him down off screen. And so now and Nick doesn't realize anything has changed between the two. He knows like oh he's kind of mad, whatever. He approaches this card game, and as he enters in like this incredible turn of phrase, he Dolokhov invites him to sit down for a card game, and and he remembers as Dolokhov looks at him, Dolokhov kind of says, you know, the, the only a fool plays a card game and leaves it to chance. So he right. kind of is looking at him in the back of his mind. He knows like, well, he doesn't play. He doesn't play to chance. He plays certainties. And as he's staring at him, it's noted Rostov saw in him that mood he had been in during that dinner at the club, and generally at those times when bored of everyday life. Dolokhov felt the necessity of getting out of it by some strange, most often cruel act. So as he's staring at me, he like sees this change coming over him and he remembers that and Dolokhov is enticing him inward. And it's just incredible writing. I got to say, this is like, you know, he said it was tense, but he's sitting down, you know, you're sitting through and he thinks he's lost maybe 10,000 rubles. And the narrator tells you he's actually lost 20,000 because he's just not even willing to really look at the scoreboard. He's so deep into it at this point and so neurotically trying to earn any money back and just, Dolokhov, not even telling stories, just basically, this isn't said in the text, but, you know, after he's lost it, after he's lost thousands and thousands of rubles, Dolokhov no longer listened or told stories. He watched every movement of Rostov's hands and from time to time glanced quickly through his score. He decided to continue playing until the score grew to 43,000, which is the combined ages of him and Sonia, and then denies to Rostov that anything is, is wrong. He's just sitting there quietly, coldly taking his money. Yeah. It's a hell of a scene to read. Yeah, it's pretty maniacal, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I should, again, I have to emphasize this again because a 16 year old wouldn't marry him. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You got to do what you got to do, I guess. <laughs> when, when children won't marry you, you got to get fleeced there. You got to fleece your friends. You got to. Yeah. So there's two things in part two that I wanted to touch on. I think there's two major parts. The first of them is Freemasonry, and the second thing is the conversation between Pierre and Prince Andre. There are other things that happen that's for a book club conversation. We're going to be here all night if we talk about every part of it, because they're not as important, I don't think, as these two things. But maybe you disagree. So... Freemasonry. Again, if you don't know a ton about it, it doesn't really matter because <laughs> it's not really engaged with on like that deep of a philosophical level, but it's just sort of, you know, they believe in equality of brotherhood. There's all this, these virtues that they talk about. There's a lot of ritual and I don't really know how accurate the ritual in the book is. I would be curious if one of our Freemason listeners would <laughs> let us know. I'm just assuming we have at least one. Sure. I mean, I, I, if they're taking over the world, like they got to have at least one person keeping an eye on us for all of those important things that we do. You'd hope. We'd hope. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing is just Freemasonry kind of in general. I don't think this is ever confirmed. I think it may actually have been uh, refuted, but Napoleon himself was rumored to be a Freemason. I'm not sure again if that's true or not, but... It was very, very big in France at this time. And so naturally, it would be coming to Russia from 
first of all, just the general cultural exchange from all the Russians that were studying in France. And then now you have the war where all of these French Freemasons were probably fighting in the war and they were getting, you know, it's just another means of cultural exchange, more or less. When you're not on the front line and you do have these times where the soldiers may be mingling, just more of an opportunity for ideas to spread and whatnot. So it's in Russia. Pierre, he's doing it. And the one thing that I wanted to highlight about Freemasonry and its relationship to Pierre is kind of how Pierre deals with these sort of philosophical systems more broadly. Freemasonry, at least the way it's portrayed in the book, is something that you can just kind of follow some steps and meditate a little bit, and it gives you these really good moral absolute closed systems, and you can achieve whatever this sort of outcome is, this love of death, this internal peace, whatever it may be, Freemasonry can help you do that. And that's what kind of starts this conversation with Prince Andre later. And so this is how these two things are both connected and very important to this part and the book as a whole. So Freemasonry is helping Pierre answer these questions that he's posing at the beginning. What is bad? What is good? What should one love and hate? What does one live for? And what am I? All these really big questions. However, after Pierre kind of departs from his Freemason friends, he talks about the fact that he feels that he thinks that he should be able to attain some sort of perfection, and he feels that there is a possibility of an active brotherly love among men. And this is what sort of sets him on his path, as Cameron was talking about, of helping his serfs and building new buildings and this sort of thing. And Pierre eventually says that the meeting was over, and on reaching home, Pierre felt as if he had returned from a journey that had lasted for decades, that he was completely changed and had left behind his former habits and way of life. And we're going to see that this is absolutely not what happens for Pierre. And this is absolutely not what happens for Tolstoy more broadly. There really is no moral absolute to war and peace, I don't think. And Freemasonry is just one of these examples that's going to work really well as a case study for this for Pierre later. And you're going to see as people sort of reach these moral heights, they really eventually come crashing down. And Pierre is going to do it a couple of times. But this is going to be a good thing because it's going to help him figure out what it is he needs to figure out. And you have Levin sort of do this in Anna Karenina as well. Tolstoy does it himself uh, throughout his life many, many times. And so it's kind of a, an important thing to watch him go through. But you have to understand Freemasonry as a sort of absolute that Tolstoy is kind of putting out there for you to wrestle with. And fortunately, you don't have to wait that long because he gives you Andre and he gives you this conversation like uh, almost immediately after in the same in the same part. And what I thought about, which was funny to me, was that Pierre, even as he's talking with Andre, he knows that Andre is smart and he's just hoping that when he starts to argue with him that Andre doesn't undo his way of thinking with just like a couple <laughs> a couple of words. So he already kind of I think has a sense that what he's thinking isn't quite on solid ground. Mhm. I should be noted that when he goes to see Andre there's probably a good I don't know, uh, maybe even one or two full chapters of them just kind of awkwardly dancing around any good subjects partially yeah. because 
Pierre is so afraid that Andre is going to immediately dominate. He's thinking as soon as they start talking about it, <laughs> that it takes a yeah. while that where Andre is like surprisingly gentle with him in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but you know, it's paused because Pierre. So like, like you say, afraid that Andre is just going to undo everything he thinks so quickly. And he's so insecure in, in the way he's thinking, because even the moment, even as he's going through it, he's, already not she's already doubting his own self as he's in the middle of the ritual as he's in the mm-hmm. middle of as in a dark room wearing nothing but a robe like being forcibly prostrated in front of a, you know a weird altar he's already like is this really the right way to go and you can see that reflected and i don't need to mm-hmm. explain uh, you know that's just uh, showing off uh, all the things matt was talking about as as andre is much more well seemingly i should say much more just like i'm living for myself uh, I'm living for for my for my you know my son my family whatever not but only as so much as it benefits me. It's very you know you they haven't seen each other as as it's noted in two years, and it's very uh deep philosophical conversation that you have with your friend after a couple beers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a pretty major disagreement on this idea of living for others versus living for yourself, and I think Andre is right and wrong and he is proven right in this book this idea of living for others as pierre is currently doing it through his freemasonry ideals is not really panning out and you already mentioned this so i won't rehash it but when he is going to his different properties and looking at the effects of what he's done and he thinks wow good on me i'm so great but what the narrator is very quick to point out is that nothing he did helped. Actually, he made it so, so much worse for everybody. And, or either he made it worse or it was already bad and they're just kind of shuffling him along like, oh, great, you big rich oaf, thank you for the money. And so Andre is right in the sense that, right, this isn't, this is not helping. This is not a sort of living for others that should be a model that we should aspire to at all. And this is a really pressing and important question to Tolstoy, actually. The fact that it's appearing already in War and Peace is uh, it's great because it's setting the stage for the probably the world's biggest mental breakdown ever that he has <laughs> by the end of his life, where he writes a book that we have covered on this podcast. It's been translated a thousand different ways, but it's like, what then shall we do? What then shall be done? I think we did a, a what is to be done because that was the name of the series that we're doing. It's way back. It's episode, like, I don't know, 17 back there. But the whole book, which is not that good, is trying to figure out how actions affect other people, but not in this always super direct way, kind of a little bit more abstract, I guess. And so through Pierre's ideals, which are really good and well-meaning, he actually makes life worse for a lot of people. And... It's an interesting commentary on progress, on social reform, and you might not necessarily agree with it, but it is interesting for this time that he's writing as well, which is progress oriented, <laughs> uh, to put it to put it one way. Yeah. And yeah, so I don't know about you, but I think Prince Andre he had a couple good zingers in there, and then I think that he is right in the sense that living for family is in some ways living for yourself that's he's not the only one who said that that's been said before but 
what I do, I do disagree with some of like <laughs> his categorization of his own change where he says, I used to live for glory, which was actually living for other people. And I would say, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was living for yourself. This conversation was fascinating to me because I, it's, uh, something you told me a long, long time ago about looking towards Tolstoy's shorter works for ideas that will develop in bigger works. Mm -hmm. And it does make me, it, like, as I was looking at this, I was seeing the connections to, I mean, partially, not so much in this part, a little bit earlier, maybe Father Sergius of, like, that sure. like that character who had everything, attractive, rich, whatever, and turning that away for the church. Um, now, that's a slightly differently for, for Pierre here, because Pierre turns it away for not for, like, becoming an anchorite, but rather to become a Freemason, mm -hmm. its own thing. But this, especially, like, this conversation that they have about the serfs specifically is interesting to me, because... You know, of course, as we know, Tolstoy's own beliefs later on in life from, as you mentioned, what is to be done, you know, he has this kind of epiphany and begins to realize that he can only, his life can only exist because of the, uh, as like a non-worker because of the life of the workers. And so he has this like, not Marxist, like it's a very close to what, at like <laughs> very easily if you consider Marxist interpretation where he's like, yeah, it's like these people who own things can only exist because of. Of people who work. Wait, wait a minute, are we the baddies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In another system, maybe you might call that a working class, in an ownership class, or a capitalist holding sure. class, capitalist class. But of course, I don't think we have any evidence that Tolstoy ever read any Marx, although his beliefs kind of parallel, not in such a systematic fashion that Marx you know lays out. But um, uh, you are kind of seeing these like connect these like webs in this one particular conversation is like like you pointed out this is really something that sticks out to me because it is combining a lot of tolstoy's thoughts that he's expressed in other places and other works but also with thoughts that are obviously being had at the time of like andre later on asserting that there is a certain thought class people in the nobility and as also this is something that i i, I should say is is interesting beyond just tolstoy but asserting that there's a certain class of people who are, are, are thinkers and we need us to think in the same way that there are certain class of people who are just workers and we need to beat them or we need to send the Siberia to think otherwise because if we sorry that's a <laughs> emergency alert um it's been really good my, my phone thinks I live 20 miles north of where I do which normally wouldn't be a problem but 20 miles north of where I am is getting a lot of flooding and evacuation orders right now right, I'm telling I, you you get a big van you drive up there you open it you let some of the water come in you drive <laughs> it down to Southern California millionaire <laughs> we already sell all our water down to Southern California they don't need any more um, no you could sell more just get a bunch of bendy straws <laughs> put them together you can build a big tunnel down to Southern California <laughs> Um, <laughs> you take some of Liz's gauze that uh, <laughs> was from her broken hand. <laughs> it's not broken, just melted. Maybe you got yourself an economy going there. There we go. <laughs> um, but yeah, like this conversation of that that's happening here between the two of them of that's like an interesting conversation in Tolstoy's other works in things that are happening in Russia in the Russian Empire and other places in the world at this time. It's just a fascinating conversation, and too, like, like the just out getting out of specifically analyzing this book for its time. This idea that like working classes are people who don't need to think is something that's like true to today to a certain mm -hmm. extent. I don't think anyone would really say that, but you know, I I, I forget. Well, I think I was reading um, what was it? Uh, I want to say Bertrand Russell 
I'll, I'll double check that check the show notes make sure that's correct right but like is was writing in like the early 20th century about to the to to the privileged classes it's shocking that a working class b person should have luxury or should not should, should have a moment to rest or should have leisure time or should have not work uh and so these ideas being expressed by andre of if we don't beat them for not working they won't they won't truly be the best they could be because if they don't we don't beat them and they don't work then they won't they'll go to drink and they'll be not they won't be a productive class i mean beyond just analyzing tolstoy for tolstoy it's a larger idea you see in history and and to talk about um, literature not only as thing that's worth reading in and of itself but also to understanding <laughs> currents of thought that are are more perennial than we tend to think of them yeah i kind of i don't i, I don't know if prince andre is really 100% believing everything he's saying or if he's just trying to kind of, you know, antagonize Pierre. Yeah. But, you know, I won't give him an out because he is trying to make this argument. <laughs> yeah, well, just just the, just the fact, the mere fact that it's expressed, I think it's interesting. Sure, sure. It's like when I was reading, um, God, I was reading a lot of Sinclair Lewis for a while, when a couple of years ago. And so he, one of his books, Babbitt, which is written maybe the 1930s, I remember this being like a really transcendental moment for me because the beginning of Babbitt opens with this character, the main character of the book, arguing with his neighbor and being like, you know what? The, the pre- Finally, America, it's all out of order. What we need is, is a president with business sense to get back into America. And when I read that, I just like had like a it's, you know, what was that? Like the Raven. Um, it's so Raven like moment of like flashing back in so my life of every time anyone has ever said America to get it back in order needs a business sense, realizing that like this sort of thought and this sort of people saying this has happened for like almost a hundred years, probably more. Uh, that's, I mean, talking about this book worthwhile examining in, in, in reference to itself and reference to its ideas. It's time to establish, but also like all of Tolstoy it's, it's worth reading also just in a broader global context of attitudes, which are older than sometimes we think. Sure. I mean, that's part of what makes it a classic. Yeah, I think people don't always understand. Maybe that's like what differentiates or can be part of what differentiates a classic. There you go. Yeah. But anyways. But anyways, I think that's probably enough for now. There's so much of this part. And if you would like to hear more about it, we're going to be hosting our book club. Check our uh, check our discord for the dates. I think when this episode comes out, you've missed the first month, but you could be in time for february's book club meeting so get, get on in our discord find out more get on patreon based on yeah. our math it should be in february second month of releases but we're not good at math so mm-hmm. check our patreon to, or, or, or our discord <laughs> to double check us well before we totally wrap up cameron i gotta ask you on a scale from one to yeltsin how drunk are you um having this is lit this is second two and a half cold torpedoes um mm-hmm. feel feel good feel strong i feel good okay Five and a half percent, I will say. Oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Do yeah. you think that the beer is going to go public? In I your business does. sense. I mean, well, I, I mean, like Sierra Nevada, their 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 um their bread and butter is beers that are like seven to nine percent. So, mm. hope all their beers go public. But anyway, I got to ask you, what is your zinger of the week? And I forgot to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in the episode. Week two. Yeah, this is how the zinger I, of the week I is just, going. I just control shift teed so I can <laughs> open up my last tab to figure out from my notes <laughs> what I think. But I didn't really, this wasn't really a. Not a zinger whole, chapter. It was not as funny as the last episode we did. No, this one is sadder. 
it, it's much more harrowing, I guess. Okay, so I think my zinger is on how dumb Pierre is. I think I'll, mm. I'll give that for a zing of the week. <laughs> sure. Which, when he's being shown around to the States, the person who is, I can't remember who it was, is showing him around, is showing him things that, according to his understanding of his master, would be more likely to touch and delude him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, Pierre's not that smart. But um, I think I think it's something. a funny line that what is it it's noted that the person who's deceiving him is not very intelligent but he's really cunning and he can easily get one over on his more intelligent master which i think is a funny just a funny reflection on the differences between yeah. intelligence and truly understanding okay. something i know i gotta wrap it up and it is funny but it yeah. also is just like the beginning of anna karenina when the narrator is narrating and I'm trying to reconcile Dolly and Steva. And the narrator says that Anna divines what would touch Dolly the most in order to kind of reunite them. And it just made me think that that was like very, very similar, but given to a minor character here instead of a major character. And Anna Karenina, anyways. Anyway. We gotta wrap, it up. We gotta <laughs> wrap, wrap it, up. it up. I got corporates, they're shutting down the lights. And cor corporate is literally, I see like. I think I see a laser. I think a snipers are coming for us. <laughs> <a> sniper die, <laughs> yeah. It's on my forehead. Yeah. Well, before the sniper takes either of us out, Matt, what are we covering in our next episode of War and Peace okay. series? TM. Next episode, we should be covering book two, parts three and four. Or no, just part three. Tune into the episode to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, so I didn't bring my book because I'm an idiot and I have my notes sure. done. But I was looking on the couch earlier and there's just like no good way to divide this book into three parts. Like you'd have to cut it somewhere in the middle of one of the chapters. And I don't want to do that. So I think next week's the light week. I think next week we're reading part three of book two. Next week, you're taking it easy. Kick back. Get your, get your uh, tropical drink, the umbrella for your tropical drink, and, and, and know that you this is the only break you get. <laughs> this is these. the only break. And then we're back at it, baby. <laughs> <laughs> then we're back at war and peace. <laughs> just war. It's just war. <laughs> we're back. Just war, which unfortunately Tolstoy is a fairly adept writer at, and it's yes. it is it is good and hard to read. I think, I can't remember what, like, there is one of these books that we're going to get to, and it is a much shorter one, mm. but this was, like, I don't know, in my copy, this was, like, 150 pages, at least? 170, maybe? Sure, yeah. I don't know how yours was, but this was a long uh, two parts for wrong. me. Yeah. And then three, four, and five are also, like, I think this book is about, like, 20 to 25% longer than the other ones. Uh, and so once we're through this, we are out of the weeds. I mean, we're still in the weeds, but we're out of like some of the other weeds, you know? It's all weeds, really, but it's all weeds. less. All weeds all the way down with Tolstoy. Right. Mm. It's like we were in weeds, but now we're in like, in like, a, I don't know, yuppie wildflower garden for pollinators, <laughs> something like that. So it's like still weeds, but it's like intentional. Sure. Yeah. Sure. yeah. All, right. all right. Fair enough. Well, this is the longest episode ending ever. Yeah. No, it's not, but usually we're far drunker when it's this long. And before we let you go, we wanted to provide a quick thank you to all of our patrons, as well as our newest one, JG. So JG, thank you so much for supporting the podcast, but we also want to extend a thank you to Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Khalil, 
Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Packrob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Irini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Uh, podcasting isn't free and grad school does not pay very much. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep this show running, you can take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. And the music used in this episode, as always, is Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. All right. Well, we'll see you all again next time. <laughs>